chapter 15, in which I take a tankard of porter at the centre of the world. An ordinary taverner speaks his mind. An old friend is restored. A question of dreams and reality. Rules of the house. Oh, this is devilish queer, thought I, hesitating with one hand playing upon my pommel, the other taking a firmer grip on my sabre's hilt. I could see through the windows there was nothing overtly sinister about the place. It was full of plainly dressed fellows in honest homespun, in broad-skirted brown riding coats, moleskin breeches and jackboots, bewigged, like most Murrenbergers, after the fashion of a generation earlier than mine, with slouch hats or tricorns, and rather more ribbons and buckles than was thought good taste by the demi-mold. But none was armed. None waited with leering eye for Ritter Manfred von Beck to come strolling in. Indeed, all the people there, including the serving maids, were the healthiest I had seen in the whole city. The tavern had the air of a sanctuary rather than a trap. Yet all had agreed that the Red O'Dowd came here to a score of years since with bloody steel to carve a ruthless path to kingship of the deeper city. A Hun, the Goat Queen had said, who killed for pleasure, or merely to command the centre. Were tavern licences so rarely granted in this Murrenberg? I bent to pull up the flaps on my boots until they rose towards my thighs, pulled back my hair and tidied it in a fresh knot, adjusting my neck cloth and dusting down the rest of me. I was not wholly satisfied with my outlook, but it was the best I could produce. Without further ado, I pushed open the doors of the friend indeed, and, with a good evening to you gentlemen, strode up to the counter and ordered from the barman a tankard of their best black porter. It was when I felt in my pockets for coin I sensed the worst danger thus far, the threat of ignominious dismissal from the premises. But luckily, I at, a last, I at last discovered a few shillings, more than enough for a whole evening swilling, and was at my ease again, with the pot in my fist going to sit in an empty booth furthest from the door and nearest the stair. It was not so warm there, and the spot was unpopular, but I felt comforted with my face to the whole assembly. The only peculiarity about those men was that they were all about my own age. There were no youths, and few above forty. They were at dice, or played cards, or grew animated around the dominoes. While none evidently bore arms, I began to gain an impression of soldiers, or possibly thief-takers, off-duty. Taverns everywhere were patronised by their like, so I saw no special significance in that, save that I appeared to be the only stranger. The friend indeed possessed some of the character of an informal garrison. From what I could tell, there were no casual customers. I was not, however, quizzed or threatened, nor given anything more than the most cursory attention. In return, I showed little curiosity towards them. I was hoping Labussa was on her way, that she would soon burst through the door and greet me, 
my divine compulsion remained as strong as ever. I loved her. An hour or two went by. The gaming and drinking around me was unabated, yet the atmosphere remained moderate. I took another pint of porter, porter which was of excellent quality, like that brewed by monks in the Low Countries, and a fair match to our best German beers. I instructed a red-cheeked, buxom maize to bring me a plate of grouse pie and muckwurst. Muckwurst, the same as was advertised upon a board overhead. She complied. I inquired about beds. She told me she would ask the proprietor if any were available, and then, as I was eating, there came a heavy tread on the unseen stairs behind me, and a second late, later a huge bulk filled the entrance to my booth. I put down my pie as best I could, between bench and board, giving a slight and unbalanced bow, for this was evidently mine host. His beard flared wildly about his great face like Jupiter's aura, red and unkempt and curly as his locks. From all this redness, for his skin also had something of the brewer's flush, glared two pale blue eyes, as if twin nuggets of ice with a core of flames. "'You'd be wanting a bed,' said he. He wore a heavy leathern apron from neck to knee, and was in shirt sleeves. His arms were brawny, and muscles stood out upon his entire physique, pushing upon the simple linen and wool of his attire. "'I desired, sir, to stay the night here,' I said. Looking carefully at me, he grunted, Night, a Muranberg night. Well, maybe ten hours at most. Do you rent chambers, sir? Oh, we have them, I. He frowned. Most here are residents. Where are you from, sir? From the upper city just lately. I'm a few days at most in the Missile March. I've seen no clocks, and if it's possible to tell time from those stars, well, I've not yet learned the trick, sir. Eh, fair enough. He seated himself in the corner of my bench. It was twice my size. A surly giant, thought I, and one best placated. Then would you know I'm the red O'Dowd? I saw your name upon the board outside, sir. He frowned again. You've been travelling long by the look of you and sleeping rough, eh? Perforce, sir. So you'll know, not know much of my of the hostelries hereabouts. Uh, this is the first I've seen, sir. Yeah, it is the only one, really, in the deepest city. The only true tavern, at any rate. And I'm the only ordinary taverner. I give clean beds, simple food, and good ale at a fair price. Well, I'll vouch for the food and the ale, sir, and I'm sure the bed, too, will be excellent. He cocked his head on one side. Most folk are feared of coming here. They think the Red O'Dowd a monster. You're large, sir. And you have a temper if offended, eh? Yeah, I've an Irish temper, said he soberly. For I am an Irish man, you know, from Kerry. But raised in Cork, the temper brought me here in the first place on account of the Great Rebellion. I know it, sir. I fought with Lafayette. This puzzled the Red O'Dowd. 
Now, I don't remember a froggy. One of Washington's greatest generals, sir. I began to think him a kisser of the Blarney Stone. Ah, sir. We're at cross purposes. You refer to America while I speak of Ireland. Of Cork, to be precise. Well, rather, to be entirely precise, of Clonakilty and the Great Rebellion there. I'm unfamiliar with it, sir. I forgive you, sir. A great deal of English plotting goes to abolish the memory of Ireland's history. We took on the British and we were betrayed, sir. Yeah, that was in 1762, before ever I arrived in this accursed limbo. Betrayed by a woman, sir, before we could as much as raise the money for the weapons, which caused my God-fearing father to send me for a soldier so as to escape scandal. From which, after two years of it... I deserted. To the French? Well, to the British, sir, as it happens. On account of already serving with the French at the time, my father being a good Catholic man. It was a troublesome and confusing period for us. It had become my ambition even then to settle somewhere after I'd raised the money for the purchase of an inn. One thing leading to another, and finding the British army no more congenial than the French... I resigned from that during an expedition to Wiltshire, put down the riots there. For a while after, sir, I'll not mince words, I worked Hampstead Heath and the Great North Road as a gentleman of the Toby, whence circumstances led me abroad again in service with various Balkan peoples against the Turks, then with the Turks and Poles against the Russians. It was during one of these campaigns I became lost in the Pripyat marshes near Pinsk. When at last I found my way out, I was somewhere in this middle march. Having little hope of salvation, I joined myself with a group of Ukrainians in similar circumstances to myself. Yeah, for a while I lived as a rural bandit. Eventually we came to Muranburg. Learning that the deeper city has no decent tavern of its own, I decided to provide one. And thus, as you see, I eventually did. What, sir? You conquered this whole district simply to establish your inn? Oh, it's a well-situated inn, sir. And it is what I wanted for myself all along. Tis built upon a sweet water spring, forever fresh. And so a mystery was explained. Certainly it was the most mundane of solutions, and yet for all of that it was welcome to me. I had become too used to claims of high destiny and supernatural ambition. Well, Mr. O'Dowd, said I, I'm mighty glad to have found you. I hope you'll be very comfortable, sir, said he, and recommend us should you have the opportunity. There were, I discovered, certain drawbacks to the site. Now, what would they be, sir? Well, sir... Save for my men and a few others like yourself, there's no trade to speak of. What's more, until recently, we were subject to raids from bandits of one kind or another, who presumably wished to take over my property. It's been troublesome for us, sir. How have you maintained yourself? You know, the tavern's subsidised by our shops across the street, by means of a small levy on local persons, whereby we guarantee to protect them against thieves. In that, we've been successful, and many hard cases have been brought to justice. The Red O'Dowd now had a melancholy air as he retailed his problems and their solutions. 
Uh, I suppose you could say fate has not been wholly unkind to me, sir. I had hopes of finding a wife too and raising a sizable family. So far nothing's come of that ambition. There's been much talk lately, sir, of some great gathering of stars in the heavens which will change the fortunes of many. I live in some optimism there. Perhaps when that occurs I'll find more customers, more cash, and more chance to go courting. Uh, you can hope, sir. All must suffer some frustration in this world. At least you've achieved much of what you desired. Uh, I don't complain, sir, though with so many anxious to lay hands on my property, it's not always possible to rest easy at night. I have to quiz strangers, you understand. I understand, sir. Then try every means of taking my tavern from me. Securities maintained by a force of bravos I'd rather have dismissed years since. Lord Renyard, who otherwise always seemed a decent enough fellow, you know, for a fox, casts his eye on the place. He's tried to take it off me once or twice, but I've heard he's sick, possibly dead, so maybe I'll see no more trouble from that quarter. It's been quiet for some while. Now, but you'll not relax your guard just yet, eh, sir? We've, de we've defended excellently in all aspects. With supernatural aid in this? With God vanished from our realm, sir, how could you think so? I have the fish, of course, but she's not as young as she was, and the helmet's been of use since the local people seem afraid of it, but otherwise what we've done has been done by our own efforts. I was now reconvinced that the Grail did not exist. It was either a phantasm, or it was anything a believer, even Lucifer, wished it to be. I could as easily call the tankard I was supping from a Grail. This talk led me to ask after Labusa. Has a young woman called at your tavern recently, Mr. O'Dowd? I described her and her clothing. He shook his head. I'd have noticed if she had, sir, for I'm still on the lookout for a wife. Indeed, our only customer, aside from yourself, is a young man who'll be coming for his supper any minute, I shouldn't doubt. A her faults. I understand from Nuremberg, a scholar interested in our old architecture. Have you heard of him, sir? Now, the name has a familiar sound. It's some years since I was last in Germany, however. Eh, just so. Well, sir, he rose ponderously, I trust you'll accept a pint of porter on the house. No doubt of it, Mr. O'Dowd, and I thank you. He was on his feet, and you'll recommend my inn? Enthusiastically, sir, I find it very acceptable. He was pleased by this and beamed. Ah, uh, I'm flattered by your condescension, sir. He looked up. There was another footfall on the stairs. Ah, uh, here's the rogue gentleman scholar now, sir. And around the corner of the booth into my line of vision, between the great bulk of the red O'Dowd and a table stepped a spry young fellow in the suit of deep red silk, white linen, and a wig powdered with the faintest of pinks. He grinned at me as he made a leg. Enchanted, sir. <laughs> Delighted, sir, said I, almost laughing aloud with my joy, for it was my Labusa, back in mannish attire, in her role as the Duke of Crete, and full of good cheer. Do you mind if I join you, sir? Not at all, sir, most welcome. The Red O'Dowd, pleased that his guests were compatible, went on to see the separation as supper. Labossa sat herself across from me, 
and in a low voice explained how there was no occult mystery to her disappearance. A loose paving stone, a chute, and I was fifty feet underground. The moving flagstone was doubtless part of some antique defence, a trap for attackers. Emerging from the tunnels, I simply asked for directions to the sun, and here I am. Yeah, but how did you change your costume? She put a finger to her lips. Oh, my clothes were filthy after the fall, stinking of animal dung, I think. So I was anxious to change them. By luck, I bumped into an old rake from the high floors, as they call them. I accepted his invitation for a tete-a-tete, -tete, ate a good meal, drank some excellent wine, bumped him on the head, took some clothes and a portmanteau, borrowed his carriage, and left him trust for his wife to find. She was visiting relatives in the lesser city, due back tomorrow. Do you know what time it is, Von Beck? No, you should have stolen your patron's watch. Yeah, he didn't carry one. Few do, it seems, in the deeper city. You found your way here easily enough, eh? With no difficulty, after my conversation with Lucifer. She began to laugh, and I derived considerable satisfaction in telling her the whole tale of my adventures, and finished by slyly showing her the pommel of my sword. She was mightily impressed, and looked at me, I thought, in a fresh light, more admiring. I doubted if I had ever been so happy. Lubosa was in fine spirits, and as we ate our supper she spoke lasciviously of the pleasures we should know in an hour or two. I did not question her earlier remarks concerning a period of celibacy. I felt buoyed upon scented clouds. We'll stay here tonight, she said, and as soon as we have the grail we'll be on our way. We must begin again. The grail isn't here, Lubosa. She pushed her plate aside. She was amused. Of course it is. You've had confirmation from the Red O'Dowd? I asked. Oh, he knows nothing. He's a good-hearted simpleton. He'd know the Grail, Labussa. He told me he has no supernatural objects here. And I believe him. He may think he does not have it, but he is wrong. Labussa, how can you know? Well, it cannot be anywhere else, she said. Well, having no wish to argue with her and thus threaten the prospects of our night, I said nothing. I could only hope that in the morning, when she could not find the grail, she would agree to return with me to Prince Miroslav's, giving up the pursuit which had already ruined the sanity of Monsorbier and Klosterheim. A little later, having told our landlord we had become such good friends we would share a room together to carry on our conversation there, we ascended to the top of the house. The room was large, and a great window let in the light of Muranberg's stars. They seemed clearer there than anywhere else. I stared at the huge old suns, at the beautiful smoky clouds, until Labossa seized me by the shoulders and turned me to face her. She kissed me gently upon the lips, the signal for another long celebration. I was her lover, her son, her wife and brother. The Corinthian columns were falling. The ruins of Athens and Minos were eroded by a long wind. Roofs and walls crumbled into the sea. The fortress of reason were besieged. Mercury cried out, face burning, body contorting, writhing as he was pulled into the sun's gravity and there consumed. Io is drowned. Europa's hacked into rotting fragments. The gods are withering, fading. Some scream in their death throes, 
and Theseus grins with contemptuous bloodlust, believing he alone dismisses them. Theseus the slayer of monsters, betrayer of women. I am drugged on this. It is only dreaming. It remains more intense and pleasurable than any reality. I would dream forever rather than return to that world of injustice and disease I've left. I become he, she, and Labusa is she, he. We are one sex, one creature. We have found the path to true mutual harmony. If the Grail were indeed harmony, I thought, then I had found it after all, in this tavern at the centre of the world, where all dimensions of the multiverse, as Labusa called it, intersected, in the city called Amalorm, timeless city of the pit. Amalorm was all cities, and all cities were the sum of mankind's ambition, its wisdom and its failings. Amalorm, whispered Labusa, could never be destroyed, even if her very foundations turned to dust. Amalorm could not die. And soon, when the concordance is here, we shall become immortal also. We shall become immortal, you and I, Von Beck, and we shall be one forever. I screamed, somewhere beyond time, as her lips and fingers touched the instrument of my body. I was burning. I was Mercury. I was Io. I was Zeus himself, dying in flames upon Mount Olympus, yet laughing at the foolishness of those who had allowed him to rule them for so long. She anointed my body. O oh, Lucifer! She anointed my body with creams and oils which bore the sense of all that was beautiful. We were a million shadows, multicoloured, faceted, of a million living men and women plunging through the multiverse, through the richness, the densely populated spaces, the timeless places that were all times, the infinity which was the multiverse. She anointed my body with creams and oils. She anointed her own. As we flew, as the witches and the warlocks of our gothic past flew, we flew at night under the autumn stars and were laughing at the world. Our Labusa, crucible of ancient fiery blood, inheritor of a thousand martyrdoms, pray we shall not be martyred again. In our divine frenzy we flew, Shall Daphnis be born again? Here was Achilles brought before Lycomedes. Simplicimus, delivered of all affliction. I thought, let her prophecy be true, one we shall see in an end to lances, muskets, flags and drums, an end to the ruin which lets flow so much blood, and the blood turns to poison, spreading over the whole map, destroying the roots of the tree. Let the tree be saved. Torquemada, enemy of flight, wrote it down in his hexameron. Let them call it what they like. Let them say it was the witch's gallop and speak of hellish vengeance. But I knew it was no sin. We should be purified and become one. It was there in the parchments and the vellums of certain libraries always there waiting to be understood. But understanding came only through experience. We were flying beyond the world, and the furious beast with blazing eyes and red fangs beat his club upon the earth in a madness of frustration. Hermaphrodite steals the power, 
then scatters it to the winds of limbo. None shall have it. All shall have it. Within us she is our salvation. We are whole. Yet, beating through this triumphant wonderment of molten brass and fiery gold, of mercurial silver, was the dark temptation, the greedy beast which lurked still in the labyrinth, which threatened when it was confident, which scuttled and hid when challenged, so that once we thought him banished forever, and which could destroy all we valued when we least expected it. I tried to speak of the beast to Labusa, but she would not hear me. We must be careful, I said. We must not succumb. She laughed. Von Beck, we shall be invulnerable, inviolable, omniscient. I said, but not omnipotent. Oh yes, she said, omnipotent too. I told her I did not want such power. She was amused and stroked my head with her tender fingers. We were dreaming together. We were the same thing. We explored eternity without urgency. This was the time of our flying, glistening naked, burning like the sun across the dark, misty heavens where the old stars gathered to die. After Daedalus helped Theseus, the engineer was imprisoned in the very labyrinth he had built to contain the Minotaur. With his son Icarus, he escaped on wings of his own invention, reaching Sicily, though Icarus perished. Pursuing Daedalus to Sicily, Minos was slain by the daughters of Cocullus. It did not matter how close to the stars we flew, but I wished she would not speak of the future, for it made me fearful. We were gliding towards a gigantic tower. It was white. A tower carved from a single massive femur. The bone tower, she said. We slipped through one of the windows like a fracture in the paleness. And here were all the kings and queens, emperors and empresses, even some gods and goddesses who had inhabited Earth's history, all gathered in one place. It was a ball, held upon a vast, irregular, circular floor. They danced stiffly, constricted by their responsibility, and their desire to will the dreams upon the world. The music was distant, hollow, Perhaps it was the bone tower itself which provided the sound. They danced. I would not join them. Labusa separated from me and drifted down towards the floor. I cried out for her to return to me. I would not go down to that terrible minuet. Was I drugged? I was in a fever of lust and monstrous images all mingled. Labusa, Labusa Lucius, Duke Duchess. Last of a line of tormented sorcerers, tracing its ancestry to Ariadne. I peered at her heavy beauty. Ariadne? Or perhaps the Minotaur? Did Theseus slay from jealousy? Was there an incestuous union between Minos's son and daughter? There remained, in spite of my obsession, the sense that she was somehow flawed as Lucifer himself claimed to be flawed. I heard the beast roaring. The thump of his club echoed in the labyrinth. Those dark corridors were unknown to me. I had neither chart nor compass. I had only the sword of Paracelsus, which for so many years had protected the father of modern science from cuckolded husbands and cheated innkeepers. Perhaps the flaw was in us all. 
without it we should be angels of the first rank, or God. She danced alone in the bone tower, amongst the dignified prancing of all those powerful monarchs, weaving her way amongst them, smiling up to me. She beckoned. I was foolish if I refused to follow her, or, she seemed to say, did I lack courage, loyalty, generosity? She had brought me to life, given me more than the world. She was my Pygmalion. Where was my gratitude? I wished to please her, to join the dance, but I could not. I reached out my hand to her, and reluctantly she returned. We were one creature again. We flew away from the bone tower. We flew over Mirrenberg and were tempted by the luring city, luring cries from below. We descended. There in a brightly lit brothel, dead harlots beckoned. Dead harlots whispered of necrophiliac delights, and again she paused, her curiosity stronger than her outrage. We entered that Versailles of brothels. The harlots were gaming. They stood upon a great wheel marked with numbers, red and black, and within that wheel was a wretched human creature, flung like a puppet from one numbered section to the next, until at last the wheel stopped. If the person on the wheel remained alive, they could claim whatever prize had been set upon their number, or could elect to take another turn, risking death against the prospect of a greater reward. The harlots describes the enormity of the potential winnings, their bones peeped through rags of flesh. They pressed us to join the game. They pushed us against the wheel. Again, Labusa would readily have taken the chance, but I was the one to pull back. She would see the degradation there was in the experience, but she could not go without me. She was contemptuous of me in my refusal to take the risk. I lacked ambition, she said. It was enough, I said, that I flew. So we returned to the centre of time and space, to tranquillity and ecstasy at the friend indeed. In the morning I found my breeches and shirt, freshly washed and ironed by O'Dowd's own laundress. The sword of Paracelsus throbbed in the cupboard where I had placed it. Lewisa did not touch it. Evidently she had already felt the shock from the blade. She crouched in front of the opened cupboard, staring at the eagle as it flew round and round, glaring at us and voicing his silent shriek, so full of insane rage he would kill whatever came within the reach of his poised claws. Whoever gave you this, she said, and perhaps it was Lucifer, as you say, not only trusted you to fulfil your destiny, but was also a true friend to us. All we require now is the cup. Miroslav's tincture is prepared. The concordance is a matter of hours away. You have heard, then, from Prince Miroslav, madam? She pretended vagueness. Did I say aught of it? Why, how have you seen him? I thought he refused to enter the lesser city, let alone the deeper. She frowned. Her expressions suggested she thought me stupid and coarse, or maybe my own self-doubt supplied the interpretation. We must breakfast, she said, and she strode across for the door of our room. I attempted to stop her, because I was unwilling to end the spell of the previous night. Madam, you'll go mad if you do not relent in this matter. We must have the grail, she said. Do you really think O'Dowd maintains this peace by the employment of a handful of picaroons? The grail makes its own harmony. Now use your nose. Sniff it out. You must try. 
Madam, I repeat to you, I am not bred as a grail hound, and I suppose I lack your terrier's instinct. I desire no more than to be what we become when we're together. Tis more than any human creature could fairly expect. She glared at me. You speak of the means, not the end. The horse, sir, is not the destination. Far more is promised. And feared by me, madam. You know how to recognise the beast. And you have shown me how to recognise him also. But you're reluctant, it seems, to renounce him. Is that what you fear? She was honestly curious. Aye, madam. You have a strange perspective on this little von Beck. She paused, her hand upon the door latch. She frowned down at me, studying me. The power I see is for the commonality, but much must be undertaken and something sacrificed before it can pass to us, and from us to the world at large. That is not the ambition of the beast. I was reassured. I apologise, madam. Let's go to break our fast. I left both my swords in our room and stepped out onto the gallery. From this a stair led down to the public saloon, where the Red O'Dowd's men were already at their beef and small ale. Beyond the windows was a blackness, made more intense by the cheery lights which burned within. As we stepped down, the Red O'Dowd came out of his the Red O'Dowd came out of his back rooms with a plate of bread and butter. He no longer wore his apron, but had on a good coat of black broadcloth black breeches, white stockings, and front-tied shoes. Were it not for his great size and flaring red beard and hair, he would have resembled a respectable parson. He said that he hoped we had slept well. He was jovial. Business, he said, was improving. He looked forward to a better season. He pointed in to one of the booths. We could not see who was there. A third customer, said O'Dowd. Good luck comes in threes. Now we had moved so that the new visitor was visible to us, sitting on the bench, picking with his knife at the fat of a small ham, was Klosterheim. He looked up at me. He might as well have been the spectre of death himself, with his hollow eyes and sunken cheeks. Good morning to thee, von Beck, said he, formally. I was too furious to contain myself. I raised my voice and my fist. You killed a harmless creature, Klosterheim, when you killed the Goat Queen. I'll not forgive you, and neither can I forget what you've become or whom you've allied yourself with. By God, sir, you had better leave this tavern or risk my steel in your heart. Klosterheim shrugged. As for the latter, I'm used to it. You have no right, sir, to order me from a public ordinary... The Red O'Dowd loomed up behind. Watch your tongue, sir, if you please, he said to me. There are rules to this house. The first is that O'Dowd says who stays and who leaves. The second's that all are welcome who believe, believe <clears throat> the second's that all are welcome who behave themselves here, gentlemen or ladies. And the third is Anyone who starts a brawl shall be at once ejected. He paused, picking me up in the most insulting manner by the back of my shirt, and turning me so that I was staring directly into his beard. So do not make me eject you, sir. He lowered me gently, and again I was standing on my own feet. 
Sir, this man's a murderer. He slew the goat queen. The little white lady who made such a fuss. Well, if that's true, sir, it would not be a pleasant thing to have done at all. But we have only your word for it, sir, and it's the essence of law, as I well know, having been tried by it more than once, to need material substantiation, sir, in the way of evidence. He tore out her throat with his teeth. The blind girl saw it. O'Dowd pursed his lips and looked thoughtful at me. Did she indeed, sir? And Klosterheim uttered a terrible laugh. 